what you and I would have to do by fasting, calorie restriction, they get naturally just because that's how their genes are wired. Could you restrict your calories, also do intermittent fasting, and limit your protein intake? It turns out that they mostly cancel each other out. We need to balance the switch being off and the switch being on. A natural diet is going to give you natural health span and lifespan. If you're really focused on completely avoiding disease, then I think you want to hack your biology. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. You guys are in for a good conversation today. So many topics so close to my heart. Lifespan, longevity, why do some people live to 100 and others don't? How our diet and daily lifestyle practices affect that? I'll keep this intro short because we dive in deep. I was a huge fan of James Clement's book, The Switch, and we've been talking and emailing a lot since then on so many fascinating research topics. I am just learning so much. One of the things, by the way, we've been discussing a lot recently that we don't talk about in this podcast is the role of endotoxin release from gut bacteria and how dietary fats can actually escort those into the bloodstream. It's pretty fascinating. I could go on a tangent, so I will just stop myself right now. If you want to revisit any of our conversation, maybe you missed something, like to read it, there will be a full transcript in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash the switch. We're also doing an Instagram giveaway for James's book, The Switch. So to enter that, just go to my Instagram. That's at Melanie Avalon. Comment your favorite biohack on the Instagram post for it, and you'll be entered to win a signed copy. And by biohacks, by the way, I mean basically any dietary change, any lifestyle change, any product you've found that enhances your productivity and resilience. Really, it can be anything. If you like talking about all of this stuff like I do, definitely join me in my Facebook group. That is Paleo OMAD Biohackers. Real foods plus intermittent fasting plus life. We discuss anything and everything there, so I'd love to see you there. I am a Himalaya partnered show, and if you follow me in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance, so definitely check that out. One quick free resource for you. I think I filled my COVID quota with episodes, but I did recently interview Dr. Kirk Parsley and Harvard researcher David Sinclair on all things COVID. So if you have questions about the stats, the science, immunity, all of that, definitely check out those episodes. My go-to resource right now for all things COVID is David Sinclair's newsletter. It's incredible. He releases all of the latest science and information, and he is truly one of the most trusted sources, at least in my opinion, for information regarding the whole COVID thing. You can get on that free newsletter at melanieavalon.com slash David Sinclair. One last resource for you. One of the things James discusses in his book, The Switch, is the massive role that the gut microbiome plays in our health. And one of the key ways of getting your gut microbiome back into shape is by supporting your system with a healthy whole foods diet. Of course, it can be problematic for some people when you react to foods. (laughs) Don't I know it. That's why I created an app called Food Sense Guide. 
Guys, honestly, I created it for myself. <laughs> I use it all the time. Basically, it's an easily searchable, comprehensive guide of over 300 foods showing the levels of potentially problematic plant compounds that they may contain that you may or may not react to. So these are things like FODMAPs, histamines, gluten, lectins, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. I recently updated it so you can do fun things like create grocery lists, export your list to print, and all the things. You can get that in the iTunes app store, or you can go to the link melanieavalon.com slash guide. All right, so without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with James Clement. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So I am very, very excited about the conversation that I am about to have today. It is with James Clement. He is the author of a new book called The Switch, Ignite Your Metabolism with Intermittent Fasting, Protein Cycling, and Keto. And listeners, just hearing that title, you can probably tell why I'm so excited because so many topics here, everything I'm obsessed with, longevity, factors that affect that, genes, diet, and James's book, The Switch, is, I mean, it's really, really wonderful. It's comprehensive. It goes into the history of humans, the diets that we followed, how things like genes and our different habits affect longevity. I mean, it's a fascinating read. It's also a very approachable read. I know a lot of these topics can get a little bit intense at times, but it's easy to read. I learned so much reading it. So I am just really, really excited for for the conversation that we're about to have. So thank you so much, James, for being here. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really excited about this discussion. Yeah. And James, so you have a really interesting background. So you were a lawyer and an entrepreneur turned research scientist with a passion of exploring the science of life extension. So Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal history and what made you become a research scientist? Sure. And it would probably take an hour to go through like all the the history of how I decided to be a lawyer rather than a scientist because I actually worked on a big project in college, put about 3,000 hours into it that got published in Science. And the professor I worked with said he could arrange a full scholarship to University of Chicago Med School if I would continue in that field. And I said, no, thanks. I'm going to pay for law school myself and did that. But in my third year of law school, this incredible book came out by Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw called Life Extension, a Practical Scientific Approach. This is 1981-82 time period. And I read that and it was basically what we would now call a biohacking book. It was 900 pages of molecular biology and how to hack it for better health and lots of like cognitive, sexual improvement, whatever, all covered in this book. And it really kind of launched me into this idea that aging and your health, you could intervene in into this by whatever you did yourself. And the more you knew, the more you could do. So it, it sort of launched me into this lifelong project of learning about molecular biology and, and how we can hack it. I love that so much. It's crazy how you can read something or just be exposed to this new paradigm way of thinking and just become so obsessed and want to learn so much. I mean, I know that's what happened with me personally. I think a lot of us, and from what I understand, you fit in this category as well, had health issues, which also pushed us into learning more about our own personal biology and what was wrong with this, how to fix it. I can certainly relate to 
that aspect. And, you know, when I was practicing law in New York, I actually had gotten chickenpox for the first time in my life when I was 30 years old. And the virus affected a lot of things, including my memory was, was really terrible. And I had partners later when I was leaving the New York firm I was with say, yeah, I'm sorry, I never got to know you, but I was sure you were going to die. So, you know, there, there things like that also, I think Dave Asprey has a very similar story. I've heard this repeatedly from doctors and other people who are interested in health span and longevity is that they, they also either themselves or had someone close to them, you know, have a problem that they needed to sort of delve into. Yeah, 100%. That is so true because it's like when your body is functioning seemingly, you know, great or you're not experiencing any sort of indicator that things might be wonky, I think it's easy to just, you know, you're not paying attention to necessarily how to optimize things because things already seem to be going okay. But then when things are not going so well, then you start trying to find the answers. And then at least for me, and it sounds like for you as well, then you start realizing all of these factors that are affecting things. And you just realize there's so much going on. And at the same time, like you said, with the biohacking and such, you start to realize that in addition to perhaps correcting where your body might've gone off course, that there's also this potential to optimize beyond that. So yeah, I've had my own health struggles and issues, but in a way I'm sort of grateful for them because I wouldn't even have this podcast, honestly, if that hadn't happened because it's really just come out of a a relentless search to just try to, you know, learn more and figure out what's actually happening. So sounds like we can relate there for sure. One of the things you talked about in the book that I loved, and this was one of the things you opened with, was the research that you had done on supercentenarians and what you had seen in their blood work. I found this really, really fascinating. So I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about your studies and your research that you did there and what you found. Sure. So in... 2009, I was on the board of directors of a startup company that uh, the geneticist that Harvard Medical School, George Church, was involved with called Gnome. It was the first direct-to-consumer genome sequencing company. And so I got to have George Church actually read my own personal genome results or, or interpretation to me. And I was interested in in anti-aging, and I found out that George was as well. So I talked to him for about a year about ideas that I had for setting up a biotechnology company and intervening into aging. And one of them was that we would use some gene editing techniques to iteratively improves our own stem cells. So our autologous stem cells, we'd take them out of us, we would make some genetic improvements, we would put them back into us. And he said, well, James, that's a really great idea and increasingly practical, but we don't know which genes to change. And so I I went away from that thinking, okay, how do we figure out which genes to change? And I've been reading the work of these really great researchers, Tom Pearls, Nir Barzilai, and Stuart Kim. And they were doing a different form of gene sequencing in these centenarians and supercentenarians. 
and coming up with some really interesting anti-aging gene information. And I thought, well, why don't we do whole genome sequencing? Since I was involved in a company that did this. So I went back to George and proposed this project and got IRB approval. And for the next four or five years, really went around the world collecting blood samples from people that were 106 years and over. So a super centenarian is someone who has lived to at least 110. And I met eventually 60 people in this age group and got them to agree to allowing us to have a blood sample from which we could take and sequence their DNA. And in 2017, we got them all sequenced and made the database available through my nonprofit organization to any researcher that wants to use that for whatever projects they're working on. So we've got like a dozen really major universities around the world using these supercentenarian genomes to look at things like disease prevention and, you know, healthy longevity. They, they were absolutely amazing. And I could, I could certainly talk to you for hours about these particular individuals because they're just incredibly memorable characters. You know, we're talking about like 111-year-olds that the nurses are saying, yeah, he still pinches people's bottoms. You know, guys that are still living on their own and driving their own cars at, you know, 106, 107 years old. So really incredible group of people. If you want to go into some of the actual anti-aging factors, it actually ties into the book very well because one of the things that we found is that there are loss of function mutations that these people have that essentially give them naturally what you and I would have to do by fasting, calorie restriction, or some kind of severe intervention that they get naturally just because that's how their genes are wired. And so a lot of this has to do with the mTOR autophagy pathway that we'll talk about later. And sort of is similar to the restricted IGF-1 that you see in dwarf mice and miniature versions of animals where they have smaller body types, but they live much longer than the full, full-sized full version of the same species. So it's really interesting that this group is actually a living example of many of the things that I talk about in the book. Super quick question. Did literally every single supercentenarian have some sort of genetic mutation that supported this? Or were there even outliers? No, there's lots of outliers. And we certainly haven't delved to the depths of what these genetic mutations are. Some of them are gain of function. So there's some transcription factors that improve like the number of mitochondria that you would have. But the ones that have been identified and we certainly see overrepresented in the population of centenarians and supercentenarians are the ones related to growth hormone and IGF-1. And again, this, this makes total sense because I would say almost all of the supercentenarian men and women that I met were actually quite diminutive, five foot, five foot two individuals. And this is sort of what you would expect if, you know, they didn't have the high levels of IGF-1 that you would expect people to have, you know, today. Okay, that is fascinating. So basically, they have these genetic mutations that 
naturally create for them in a way the effects that various lifestyle practices that we'll probably be talking more about. So we often think that, you know, various lifestyle practices support longevity, but it seems that with these lucky lottery winners, super centenarians, it's like their body is automatically creating these effects without necessarily the lifestyle practices. How often did these super centenarians actually follow the type of lifestyle practices that we might assume would lead to longevity compared to, you know, not really engaging in any of that? How did that line up? So I only know one out of the 60 who specifically was sort of what we would have called like 10 years ago, a health nut, meaning that he really watched what he ate. He did yoga. His son got him to stop doing headstands, you know, so he would prop himself up in the corner and invert himself in a handstand and then lower himself. So he was just resting on his head until he was like 106. His son finally said, enough's enough, dad. I don't know if this is safe to continue doing. But most of them had very ordinary lives in terms of they weren't specifically trying to be healthy. They weren't specifically doing healthy things. As you probably know, Jean Calment smoked for 100 years. Many of the men supercentenarians, especially the, the two most prominent American supercentenarians, Walter Bruning and another gentleman I'm not thinking of the name of, they both smoked cigars up until past 100 years of age. And again, usually only stopped because, you know, they went into nursing homes and their doctors at the nursing homes were saying, this isn't good for you, even though, you know, they'd made it to 107 or eight years old already smoking, you know, several cigars a day. So genetics plays a very important part in those people's lives. But I think for the rest of humanity that doesn't have the advantage of these genetic lottery wins, so to speak, for us, it's going to be almost 100% environmental. You know, you see various figures in the book I talk about, it's about 80% environmental and 20% genetics. But when you think about it, even have it like I do, a genetic propensity towards type 2 diabetes, you can simply hack your own diet, change your lifestyle, and greatly reduce your chance of type 2 diabetes. And, and this is true, I think, for a very large number of these single nucleotide polymorphisms that give an increased risk to disease is that there's also lifestyle changes that you can make, more exercise, different diets. If you have MTHFR mutation where you lose the methylation donors, then you can simply take methyl donor compounds. So I, I think we're learning more and more how to hack even the genetic problems that we have so that it becomes nearly 100% environmental in the sense that you can affect the ultimate outcome. I'm so fascinated by this. And because, I mean, that was something I, I'd always picked up on was that, you know, super centenarians you know, you look at their diets and their lifestyles, and it seemed that so often it's like what you just said, that, you know, it wasn't really the healthy diet, exercising a million times a day. It was more just this sense of loving life and things were going just really great. And I was, until this conversation actually right now, was just assuming that it was like a mindset thing. And so that was like the primary factor driving longevity and then perhaps genes. But now I'm wondering, do you think it's most likely these genes that is the root cause for them living so long? Or could it be something like 
Like, I'm just wondering what role like mindset comes in. One of the ways in which supercentenarians live long that we know of is through genetics, because that's what we're looking at. Certainly, if you look at individuals who are currently supercentenarians, and some of the ones that I met over the last 10 to 15 years, you also got to note that these people were born in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and therefore their diet was also completely different than our diet. Their diets were much more close to what we now consider to be like a Mediterranean or blue zone diet. So they weren't eating you know, primarily foods out of a grocery store or a fast food restaurant. They didn't have the availability of these high energy carbohydrates you know, at their beck and call 24 hours a day. So even though we can say that their genetics helped them overcome the death rate that other people would have been subject to, I still think that, that their diet did play a role and that certainly if they had been just incredibly unhealthy and eaten ballpark sausages or nitrates and, and all kinds of terrible things all of their life, they wouldn't have been in the study. And we wouldn't know about them because they would have died you know, along with, with other people. So they didn't do anything that was horrifically detrimental or they wouldn't have become the supercentenarians. And, and in that sense, it's difficult to see who also had the exact same genes that they had, were diminutive, had low IGF-1 levels, and yet died from something else, whether it was tuberculosis when they were 30 years old or you know influenza when they were 60 or something. We'll never know. That's such a good point. I guess to do the true super centenarian study, we would need to get the testing done on every single person ever. <laughs> well, you know, people at different ages. So we could see, like you just said, the people who have these same genes, but did not make it to the... And I would love to see such a study, except that unless we learn more about how to hack our own health, we wouldn't be here for the results. But ultimately, that's exactly what you'd want to know. So, for example, there's a lot of factors that show up in studies, longitudinal studies especially. So they'll say that really high levels of protein seem to be harmful to people that are in their 40s and 50s. And yet, people who are in their 80s and 90s seem to have higher protein intake levels than people in their 60s and 70s. So the question is, you know, did they get to that position in life because they had the higher proteins or are they simply have some sort of mutation where higher proteins didn't kill them off the way it killed off, you know, the 45 and 50 year olds. So when you look across this spectrum, kind of snapshot pictures of what are people eating and what are they dying from in their 60s, 70s, 80s, you're actually looking at, in some regards, totally different human beings. Because when you look at 60-year-olds, there's still a lot of people who will only live another 10 years in that group. You know, the median age for men is only 76. The median age for women, 82, which means that 50% of them are going to be deceased before that age. And so the ones that make it to 80 and 90s and, and hundreds are really different. And we haven't been doing this long enough to have longitudinal data where we study the same people from the day they were born and all the different phases of diets and exercise and stress and things like that in their lives until they die and then 
correlate all those factors against the people who died earlier. I'd love to have that information, but you know, it would take a lifetime or two to acquire that. So something sort of similar to that that I've been thinking a lot about recently, and it definitely relates to your book as well, because you do talk about the role of like plant-based diets and things like that. And I know we see in a lot of, you know, quote, blue zones, a lot of plant-based diets, something that I wonder, just personally having struggled with GI issues and gut microbiome issues, and like we're learning more and more about, you know, how important the gut microbiome is for health. I often wonder if, okay, like looking at the U.S., for example, people who seemingly thrive on, you know, maybe entirely plant-based diets, you know, vegetarianism, veganism, I wonder if that almost self-selects for healthy individuals with healthy gut microbiomes sort of set up to thrive on that diet because I think a lot of people, sorry if this is like a tangent, but it's like I think a lot of people with gut issues might actually struggle in that department and, you know, following a very, very plant-heavy diet, for example. So in a way, looking at people who follow a plant-based diet for an extended period of time, they might already be, at least on the gut microbiome side of things, set up to thrive on that diet, whereas the people that would experience GI distress and not stick to it might get weeded out at the beginning. It's just a theory that I've been like playing around with in my head. I think you're spot on. I think that's a very astute observation. And I think that the microbiome is really important to health and longevity in general. But I also think that it's a little more flexible than we think. And I follow the work of a, of a number of different scientists that work in this field and, and do the sequencing of the bacteria in the gut and follow it. And you know, some of the general observations for years was that it was very stable. Well, the other thing that's very stable in most populations is the diet. So if somebody is eating like a typical American diet, They'll probably eat a typical American diet for five years or 10 years or, or longer. And so their microbiome is going to reflect also the fact that they have this particular diet made up of you know, a certain amount of high energy carbohydrates and proteins and, and fats. And whether or not they have fiber will mean whether or not a particular type of bacteria is present or not, whether they drink dairy or consume, you know, cheese, dairy, that sort of thing will also determine like what kind of bacteria thrive in their microbiome or not. So I think you can affect your microbiome a great deal by, you know, what you consume. And it certainly if you've got an unhealthy microbiome for various reasons, like you killed off a lot of the microbiome because of taking prolonged antibiotics for some reason, or you got some really bad pathogens that killed off some of your beneficial bacteria, then it might be really hard to go back to a certain type of diet that you, that you had before, or if you're trying to adopt a new diet to do that because your population of those bacteria that would process that particular food type is really low. And you have, it takes time for this to build up and for these populations to essentially replenish. One of the things that they see in centenarians and supercentenarians is that they have much more diversity of microbiome bacteria than general populations. And so it's a little bit conflated by different issues. You know, the fact that, that where they live and many of them 
have lived in rural areas and are exposed to more animal bacteria and, you know, they, they work in their gardens. So this is very true of many of the blue zones where people generally have their own gardens. So you're also working in the soil and picking up bacteria more when you do that as well that a lot of us who live in cities, you know, wouldn't be really exposed to. So all of these factors influence how your microbiome is going to relate to the food that you're consuming. And you can hack this as well. So you can take probiotics. And of course, when you, when you make a change of diet, then, you know, you, you need to take into consideration that you need a period of time in order to allow this population of bacteria in your gut to diversify and to support the diet that you have. And there might be, you know, various uncomfortable aspects to that, bloating and gas and, and you know, other issues. But over time, that should come back into alignment. Yeah, I love that so much. And actually speaking to that, just really quickly, I know it's like kind of complicated because on the one hand, we see such almost rapid transient changes in gut bacteria based on dietary changes but then we wonder at the same time, you know, is it possible that certain species are, you know, completely lost and you can't recover them? But I actually saw a really fascinating study the other day. I'll have to pull it up and put it in the show notes. And I don't remember the specifics, but it was basically looking at some sort of modern day hunter gatherer population. And apparently due to their seasonal eating, they go through periods where they actually completely lose strains that we have lost in, in our modern world, but those strains actually come back when they start a new dietary approach based on the seasons. And so that was actually, I mean, that was really encouraging because it's like seemingly, you know, maybe it is possible to, you know, make lasting changes. But another thing that kind of ties into your book is it was very empowering because you do go through all of these, you know, lifestyle changes and things we can do for those of us who are not the lucky lottery winners in the genetic lottery. So I love to tackle some of the big topics in the book. So for example, one thing, well, of course, listeners are going to wonder what is the switch. So we will, we'll get to that. But one of the big topics in the book that I personally am obsessed with is the concept of autophagy in the body and how that supports health and longevity. So I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about autophagy. I, I will say I've read a lot on autophagy and your book was the first time that I really got a sense of what was going on. Like it made sense. And you use analogy of like a garbage truck and things like that. I really appreciated the science talking about the actual process and what it looked like. And it was the first time that I could kind of really visualize it in the cells. So for listeners, what is autophagy and why is it important for longevity? So I think the place to begin with autophagy is the fact that animals and plants evolve from bacteria. And somewhere along the, the billion years that we only had bacteria in the world, some of them evolved the ability to hunker down when resources weren't always available and turn on a process inside their cell that allowed them to get some of their nutrients from the cell itself and to shut down processes that weren't absolutely necessary to continue living. And this was in bacteria referred to as TOR, T-O-R, in mammals and other organisms referred to as 
mTOR stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin. And when autophagy is turned on, it basically is a little membrane that forms and it selectively, and again, this is an evolutionary process that it's become selective. So it selectively takes out things like misfolded proteins and dysfunctional organelles, which are inside the cell. And that includes dysfunctional mitochondria. So ones that are fused and not producing high levels of ATP are producing high levels of free radicals, which are dangerous to the cell. These kinds of misfolded proteins and dysfunctional organelles are essentially scooped up by this membrane and taken to the lysosome. This is a sort of acidic sac inside the cell where things are digested and it merges, dumps the contents in it, and those are broken down and some are recycled inside the cell for as amino acids that can be used to make proteins and other things are just gotten rid of as waste. So the analogy of a garbage truck going around and sort of picking up litter and taking it to a central recycling center is what I use in the book. And of course, in real life, in biology, this is an incredibly complicated process that people like Anna Marie Cuervo had spent their lives exploring. And we still don't know all there is to know about this. There are dozens of genes involved in just forming these membranes. And then how are these proteins and, and organelles selected? You know, how is the membrane moved, you know, to the lysosomes? It's all really incredibly fascinating. And, you know, people can go down rabbit holes um, looking at and, and talking about, you know, these, these processes. But it's incredibly important to our, to our health. And, and one of the general reasons to think about this is that why would it be important to our health is the fact that this was a process that was turned on. It was turned on on a regular basis in plants and animals whenever resources were limited. And this is something up until very recently would have been turned on in humans overnight on a regular basis and then for prolonged periods on a regular basis also where you have seasonal changes in food availability or you have a storm blows in and you know, you're snowed into your cave and you can't go out and gather or hunt. For lots of reasons, you know, humans have had limited availability of resources for most of our history as well. And so things like autophagy would have been turned on. It's a natural part of human longevity that exists. And so when you keep it turned off all the time, you really end up with something that I prefer to call accelerated aging. And I believe that most of the diseases that are associated with autophagy being turned off, such as diabetes and heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's, et cetera, that these are actually problems that are sort of linked mostly now to Western civilization, Western diets, and to a few genetic mutations that some people have that don't allow autophagy to work exactly correctly. Some of these lead to like higher risks of cancer or Alzheimer's, for example. But this process is really key to why humans live as long as we do already. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual Biohacking Conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So question about that process. One of the things you speak about is how it is good for clearing out damaged mitochondria, for example. And also, I think a lot of people often think that autophagy is on or off, like it's happening or it's not happening, but there is this idea that, you know, there's a baseline state of autophagy occurring all the time. I think you've mentioned how it's more like a, a dimmer switch than, you know, on or off for things like you were just talking about, you know, intense health conditions and such, which might be correlated to not having, you know, adequate amounts of autophagy. Does that mean that for things like damaged mitochondria or certain health issues, that the body would never address that or clean that up unless we 
create a state of energy necessity? Is that going to have to happen on some extent, you know, be it through fasting? So, you know, not taking in any food, be it through protein restriction, or will the body still be tackling that with autophagy? Do you think it requires some sort of lifestyle intervention to get it to happen? I think that it takes, for people living in the West especially, it takes a lifestyle intervention in order to restore autophagy to what it would have been like had we lived hundreds of years ago rather than now. And I talk about this in the book, the industrialization, the changes, and these are all great things. You know, it's wonderful that malnutrition isn't as big a problem as it as it was in human history, that we have fewer and fewer people, you know, dying of malnutrition. But on the other hand, you know, the fact that we have goods flown in from all over the world available to almost anyone at any time, regardless of the season, that we have lots of companies that that take products that we would have eaten only a little bit of and made hundreds and hundreds of products from those things like grains, for example, and then made them all available in one place like a grocery store where you can go down entire aisles that have literally a thousand different products all made from like one particular grain. You know, that's that's new to human history and very much cause autophagy not to be turned on and essentially hold the brake on autophagy so that it's at a very, very low level. And I think this is what's leading to these so-called diseases of civilization that I talk about. And it, it does need to be remedied. In other words, we need to get back through practices of either time-restricted eating, fasting, a ketogenic diet, etc., so that we turn on autophagy on, on a more regular, natural basis. And then a follow-up to that, what you just said, how do you feel about the autophagy potential for those different approaches? So for example, do you think somebody could get a shallower or deeper sort of autophagy from something, for example, like intermittent fasting, but then, you know, eating a surplus of calories in the eating window compared to like maybe a ketogenic diet, but you're eating constantly compared to maybe just eating constantly, but calorie restriction compared to maybe not calorie restriction, but protein restriction. So like there are a lot of different, you know, types of quote restriction that might, is one approach going to create a more effective therapeutic autophagy than another type? Or is it just based on the individual? What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great question. So this switch, we've alluded to it before, mTOR, is sort of what de- determines ultimately whether the cell is in an anabolic state where it's growing, it's making proteins. By growing, I mean the cell is reproducing, etc. This as opposed to it's in kind of a hunker down state, the catabolic state where autophagy is upregulated and it's clearing out these misfolded proteins and mitochondria, etc., then this is something that you see in these populations that I talk about. So I, I sort of single out three examples of populations that have been studied for maybe three decades or more. So it's a, these are long-term, essentially like clinical trials, if you will, in the sense that large groups of people have chosen to follow a particular lifestyle or because of where they live, they follow a particular lifestyle or a religion they follow a particular lifestyle, and this has caused their 
mTOR and autophagy switch to be more in balance with, you know, what I've been describing. And, you know, this is the Okinawans, the Loma Linda vegans, and the Mount Athos monks as three examples. And what you find is that in these groups, they have a much greater reduction in the risk of these diseases of civilization, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, et cetera, than the general population and tend to live longer. So that's sort of the equivalent of, you know, a large clinical trial. And I give these as examples because if you trace this back to what's going on inside the cell and whether or not autophagy is turned up or turned down, this kind of answers what some particular lifestyles can do. So this is really good evidence for people that sort of want to know what's one of the better proven ways that I can have a greater chance of living to 90 or 100 without heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's. Well, certainly looking at the Mount Athos monks, the Okinawans and, and the Linda vegans is a way of reducing your risk because this is what they have. And this is how it relates, you know, to this switch. But you could lead a completely different lifestyle and you could hack your biology with drugs and supplements and, you know, occasionally going on a prolonged fast and also turn on autophagy. It's just that and I talk about this in the book, but but what I want to point out is that there aren't large-scale groups of people that have been doing this for, you know, 30 years or more that we can point to and say, yes, you can be a total carnivore or a ketogenic diet person and you will have reduced risk of disease. The molecular biology tells us that there are ways to do those diets and to do them such that you turn on autophagy from time to time and that you could make it into a healthy diet, but you don't sort of have this evidence that already exists that eating mostly vegetables and very low amounts of meat, primarily branch chain amino acids, those things are what will give you the greatest health benefits. We've got lots of data that show that. Yeah, I think it's complicated because I feel like we do, like you just said, we have all this data on these other approaches. Like you said, the, you know, the fruits, the vegetables, the limiting, the protein, things like that. And now we have this whole new movement in a way of people trying things like carnivore or I feel like even more recently, since intermittent fasting has become much more popular as a lifestyle, you know, people are playing with that while not necessarily addressing what they're eating and the time-restricted eating pattern. So there's more data on that definitely than carnivore. But I guess what I'm thinking is that it's hard to know what the implications are of things like, for example, I keep using the carnivore diet as an example. And I think it also kind of convolutes the whole protein idea because I'd love to like go in deeper into the mTOR and the role of protein and amino acids and things like that because I'm, I'm so fascinated by it because on the one hand, like you said, we, you know, we do have a lot of these studies and we see things where lower protein intakes or, you know, certain amino acids correlate to longevity. But on the flip side, like, have we seen studies or things where people are following higher protein diets, you know, and fasting patterns 
or, you know, maybe higher protein, lower fat diets and how that affects longevity. So what are your thoughts on protein and longevity? I thrive on like a high protein diet. So I'm (laughs) just wondering more about that. I'm going to go back to one of your original discussion points, and that's about the complexity. And so in the book, I did create a food pyramid. And I did say, you know, one of the simplest things to do is just choose one of these lifestyle patterns, like start eating like an Okinawan, you know, like, so when I say that, I don't mean you have to eat, you know, sashimi and, and, you know, Asian vegetables, etc. What I mean is that one of their main lifestyle choices is that they supposedly only eat to 80% satiety. So they always go away from the table a little bit hungry. Like that's a custom. And it's considered rude to go to somebody else's house and sort of eat until you're full. And they also eat very little meat. Their, their meat's primarily used as like a condiment. So it works out to something like four ounces a week. I've had people write to me and say, you know, I'm trying to cut back on protein and I want to have, you know, two, four or six ounce pieces of meat a day. And that'll be about half of what I was normally eating. And, you know, I say, well, that's an improvement then, but it's not optimal. You know, and these these groups that we study are sort of what we have to at least use as a guide at the moment in terms of they appear to be turning this switch, mTOR switch down and autophagy up by following their low animal protein diets. But that doesn't mean that's the only way to make it work. And one of the things I love about specific diets, whether it's paleo, carnivore, veganism, etc., is that for many people, it's an elimination diet. So if you're following an American, a typical American diet, and I read one study that just sort of made me gasp because the study was about protein intake, but it showed the nutrient breakdown of all the foods that this fairly large group of people consumed. So it had high protein intake, medium protein, and low protein intake. And the high protein were the biggest meat eaters. But because the study was focused on that, they didn't really go into other aspects of it. And so when I was looking at the data, what shocked me was the people who had the most amount of protein from animals also had the highest caloric intake and the highest amount of calories from carbs compared to the people that followed other diets. So really it was kind of a gourmand, you know, overconsumption of food in general. So they had higher protein levels, but they also had higher carbohydrate levels if you were looking at that or higher fat levels if you were looking at that. And health-wise, the combination of high fat and high carbohydrates is basically the worst. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's basically what, what scientists give to mice to cause them to become diabetic so they can study diabetes or to get fatty liver disease so they can study non-alcoholic fat, fatty liver. So, you know, it's sort of like the worst of all worlds. And, and you know, personally, I, I had this sort of a diet for maybe 10, 15 years of my life. When I was uh, practicing law in Honolulu, I sought out one a really good health practitioner, you know, sort of on my side, and this is around 1982, and I found Dr. McDougall, 
who was still primarily a specialist in, in uh, breast cancer therapy at uh, Queen's Hospital. And he had talked me into, you know, I was convinced by his work to become a vegetarian. But this is years before the glycemic index became popularized. So I was consuming like tons of bread and bagels and pasta and rice with loads of cheese, you know, because I also wanted to get, you know, fat and, and protein in. And it really ended up wrecking my health. So it really took like learning about the glycemic index and its effect on blood sugar, which of course is one of the main elements that trigger whether the switch is in the anabolic or catabolic state that, you know, allowed me to sort of get back on top of my personal health. You were asking about the switch a little bit more. There's this upstream set of environmental sensors. So inside the cell, there are receptors that basically tell the cell whether you have enough glucose for energy making, whether you have enough growth hormone, whether you have enough oxygen and certain types of proteins. And all of these channel through upstream genes and protein complexes that then send signals to mTOR as to whether it should be in the anabolic state or the catabolic state. And one of these big ones is called AMPK. And so there's a lot of things that can essentially flip this switch at the AMPK level and have it put the brakes on mTOR. And what I was sort of astonished with when I had done this research initially back in 2013 was that almost every life-extending therapy, whether it was fasting, calorie restriction, protein restriction, including methionine restriction in rodents, all of these things basically affected the mTOR status, whether it was in anabolic or catabolic. And many of the life-extending drugs that we knew of from metformin and rapamycin, but uh, lots of supplements and things, so ECGC, even simple aspirin, all of these things tended to upregulate autophagy by putting the brakes on the mTOR. And for a while, I was suspicious that absolutely everything we knew always ended up in this one complex, mTOR, and that it only affected this condition of whether or not we were in autophagy or not. Luckily, that's not the case, and you know, there's plenty of anti-aging things that we've learned that, that are outside of this one particular complex. But there's also a question of whether or not these things, and this was sort of my initial question in doing this research in the first place back in 2013, whether intermittent fasting and calorie restriction and protein restriction overlapped or whether they would be additive if you did them all. So, you know, could you restrict your calories to say 80%, also do intermittent fasting from time to time and limit your protein intake? And would you have multiple effects from that or would they sort of cancel each other out? And, and it turns out that they mostly cancel each other out and because they're working on the exact same pathway. And so if you've properly put the brake on mTOR by getting um, lower glycogen stores and turning off that particular sensory switch so that mTOR is inhibited, then autophagy gets upregulated and cutting proteins at the same time won't really greatly increase that. 
You, you may increase it a slight amount, but they're not additive as other kinds of therapies can be additive when you put them together. So to clarify, when you say cancel each other out, it's not that they make it worse. It's just there's not an additive effect necessarily. Absolutely. That's what I mean by, by the, they, the fact that you've already put the brake on doesn't mean if you put another foot on the same brake and press, you know, the same amount that it's going to, you know, be additive. So it's really the fact that they, they all work on the same pathway primarily and that, you know, the greatest benefit is in turning autophagy on. And so another question to that, intermittent fasting specifically, a lot of times people make the argument or posit the idea that the benefits of intermittent fasting are solely due to either calorie restriction or, you know, weight loss benefits from it, that the fasting itself is not any different, especially compared to calorie restriction, that there's no superior benefit to intermittent fasting. Do you think the effects of intermittent fasting are due to perhaps intentional or or unintentional calorie restriction? Or do you think that there are different pathways being activated with that? I do believe that it's primarily the same pathway, but you can't just get the same effects from calorie restriction. I think that's more of the long-term overnight effects of small amounts of autophagy because your glycogen stores and your protein levels are slightly lower to begin with. And therefore, as you fast overnight, autophagy is going to be slightly more elevated than otherwise, than you know, if you ate 100% of the calories that, that you would want to take in. Whereas with fasting, you're really knocking out the glycogen stores, the lowering the insulin levels and reducing the branch chain amino acids that are coming to the cell. And so it's, it's a much more direct and important way of blocking mTOR, inhibiting it and increasing autophagy. So, and I think that prolonged fasts, you get deeper levels of autophagy. And, you know, so there's actually four or five different types of autophagy you know, in, in biological terms from macro autophagy, autophagy is basically what everyone calls autophagy, but there's mitophagy, which is taking out the mitochondria. There's xenophagy, which basically takes out foreign cells, bacteria, viruses, things like that that are inside the, the cell and chaperone mediated autophagy, et cetera. So there's lots of levels of autophagy And I think that this also gets activated in the longer term fast where where people fast for, let's say, 72 hours or more. And so you get a little bit different effects from these prolonged fasts than you would from just the normal overnight fast. But that doesn't mean that, that you have to do this. It's just, in a sense, more is better, you know, to the extent that you're doing overnight fasting and then occasionally you're able to also do these more prolonged fasts. So the fact that they are the same pathway doesn't necessarily mean that instead of fasting for three days, you're just going to cut your calories by 20% for three days. You won't get the same effect as the fast. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, it does. And to that point, because, you know, a minute ago we were talking about how there doesn't seem to be an additive effect to combining protein restriction, calorie restriction, fasting, that, you know, you're getting the benefits might plateau. But might that be a case where combining would lead to greater benefits because for something, for example, like a fasting mimicking diet, because then maybe it's allowing you to almost get the effects of a longer fast by combining by very specifically combining these different things, like the extremely low calorie intake with the fasting, with the likely the protein restriction as well? So the prolonged diet of Walter Longo's and some that I've seen from other researchers where you cut your calories to somewhere between six and 900, and, and you're greatly reducing the protein level, especially. And you know there's no animal proteins that are allowed during that time period. These are triggering the same sensors that will break mTOR and put on the brakes and, and to upregulate autophagy as fasting itself. And it, it, and it sort of depends on your state and how often you do this. So if you have fairly full glycogen stores and then you supply your body with just enough carbohydrates that it doesn't completely exhaust the glycogen stores in the liver and the muscles, then autophagy is not really going to be upregulated to the extent that you would desire. You really need to exhaust those glycogen stores, which will you know, reduce the insulin levels and you know, cause this breaking effect on, on mTOR. Okay, gotcha. Another question while we are still talking about calorie restriction, something that was fascinating that you discussed in the book that I was not aware of was you talked about how some of the potential negative effects of calorie restriction could be abolished when calorie restriction was paired with exercise, which I found very, very fascinating. What do you think might be going on there? Exercise and calorie restriction work really well together to reduce the amount of available energy that your cell has and to turn down mTOR and to turn up autophagy. It's not something that I would say the detrimental effects of calorie restriction are remedied by exercise. I would say that exercise is an enhancement to calorie restriction and to some extent to intermittent fasting. Some people have a hard time keeping their blood sugar from really getting too low when they fast. And, and I know this is especially true of particular gene types. So in that case, you probably wouldn't want to go to the gym and try and do a major amount of heavy, stressful exercise or running on a treadmill for hours. You might get your blood sugar a little too low. But in general, it's a great way to reduce ATP. And this is one of those sensor inside AMPK that basically turns up autophagy. So I would definitely be in favor of adding exercise to your regimen in order to enhance your autophagy levels. The part in the book that I was referencing was that adding the exercise protected bone, muscle, and aerobic capacity compared to not having the exercise. So I wonder if that is you know part of it, because people, especially with like intermittent fasting, for example, often worry that they will lose muscle mass by fasting when really it seems that, you know, 
during the fasted state, growth hormone is actually upregulated and actually can provide a stimulus for muscle growth upon refeeding. So I just feel fascinated by all of it and how things that you think might be contrary to what you want are actually the opposite. It seems to me like the body, if it's being told that it needs to and maybe the saying putting things too casually, but if it's being told that it needs to maintain these systems, so bone, muscle health by things like physical activity, then it's, in my opinion, it seems like it's going to work to maintain that. I'm just fascinated by all of it. There's certainly a plethora of studies that have shown that exercise is immensely beneficial at, at any age and that it has lots of beneficial qualities on reducing sarcopenia, the loss of, of muscle as you age, of keeping your bone density you know, high and, and uh, not getting osteopenia. So I would certainly encourage people to exercise uh, at all points of their life. So one of the things I, I talk a lot about in the book, and I tried to make a, a very specific point about, was that you can't say... Intermittent fasting sounds really beneficial, so I'm going to do it every day for the rest of my life. That's not how we evolved either. We need mTOR. mTOR tells the cell to multiply and to make proteins, and we want muscle cells to multiply. We want stem cells, chondrocytes for our cartilage and cardiomyocytes for our heart, uh, satellite cells for our muscles. We want cells to proliferate at times. We just don't want to be locked into a lifestyle and dietary habit where cell proliferation is all we do, you know, because cancer is also a form of cell proliferation. And so if you have cancer cells in your body and you're keeping mTOR going because you've got the accelerator pressed down and never put on the brake, this can lead to higher risks of cancer. But we definitely need mTOR and we need to have this refeeding period so it's, it's a combination of we need to balance the switch being off and the switch being on, so to speak. So upregulating mTOR part of the time and then downregulating it or inhibiting it other parts of the time. And this sort of cycle, which I get into as protein cycling, because protein is one of the main switches that you can use to manipulate mTOR, that this is sort of the way we evolved and the way that is going to help you avoid all of these diseases of civilization. That was actually something I had a huge question about because in your book, you do talk about this cycling and you, you know, put forth this idea in the end that, you know, perhaps we can live this lifestyle where we have about eight months or so that are high autophagy months, almost like AMPK months, and then, you know, four months that are anabolic, so more on the mTOR side of things. How do you think that compares, so that approach of like a monthly type cycle to something, I mean, I know you just mentioned, you know, the idea of not doing intermittent fasting every day for the rest of your life, but what about comparing that, like a fluctuating seasonal cycle compared to what if somebody had that same fluctuation, but on a daily basis. So they're doing, you know, daily intermittent fasting, but consuming, for example, like a high protein meal in their eating window. So they're stimulating mTOR every day, but they're also doing the fasted state every day. Do you think that those two approaches are, you know, vastly different, creating different effects? I'm just wondering yeah, what your thoughts are on that. I do think those are two completely different approaches I think it's very hard to regulate this and get the desired results by just trying to squeeze 
turning off and turning on autophagy in a single day and to do that repeatedly. And, and part of the reason is we know that it takes six to 12 hours for many genes to switch over from one state to another. And so even when you've depleted your glycogen, for example, and your mTOR sends out this signal or AMVK sends out a signal to mTOR saying, let's go into this catabolic state, it still takes a period of time for all these various sirtuin and FOXO and other genes that then tell the cell, let's start consuming fat because we don't have enough uh, glucose in the bloodstream. You go through literally thousands of gene changes. And this doesn't happen rapidly enough to say that you're going to get the full benefit of autophagy only at night and that every day you're going to wake up and you're going to have a big wave shake for breakfast so that you can turn back on mTOR. We really have to go through feeding and fasting periods on, on a much more prolonged basis uh, to get the optimal effects of autophagy. So one thing is, is sort of just being more natural. And the more natural is to follow these lifestyles that I talk about in the book, which are related more or less to kind of an older practice of living closer to the land, of having vegetables and, and less meat and, and all the things that you know humans sort of evolved to consume up until very recently, you know, had limited resources, et cetera. But the other part of that is, you know, the idea that you can optimize this for even greater health and longevity by intentionally turning on autophagy for periods of, you know, two or three days at a time. And there's hundreds of studies that have been done showing that intermittent fasting has like incredible benefits, neurological, reducing heart disease and cancer, on and on and on. And it, and it goes back in recorded history to even the ancient Greeks. They prescribed fasting for numerous ailments. And you see this in almost every religion that they included fasting. And, and it's probably not a coincidence, meaning that it was found that these things were, were beneficial and so they were codified into things that people should do. And there's many religions like the Eastern Orthodox religion, which, which has sort of a long-term fasting built into their, their religious calendar. Uh, the Mount Athos monks fast something like 180 days of the year. But most of those fasts are sort of the Walter Longo prolonged sort of style of reduced calories so they're, they're only allowed to eat for five minutes uh, in the morning, and they're not allowed meat during those days, during their fasting days. And they don't normally have dairy anyway, just because the, the monasteries don't allow women and that it, and, or females, and, and that includes everything except cats. So they don't have cows or goats that give milk. It's, it's a long involved story as to how that happened or came about, but they, they do have female cats, but, but they're, they're not allowed to have female livestock. And so, you know, they, they, they don't have dairy and then they limit meat to only feast days. So these kind of lifestyle practices, you know, show us more optimal ways and how these prolonged fasts can be incorporated into your lifestyle and, you know, the kind of benefits that you would get from that. Okay. Something that you brought up that I know I have a question that I'm 
dying to know the answer to. So you're mentioning that it takes around six to 12 hours for these genetic changes to happen. So is that one of the reasons that people might experience certain things around the same time of days because that's how long it takes for these gene changes to happen or like, you know, becoming hungry at a certain time or becoming, I don't know, even more energetic at a certain time. Does that all relate to like, that's how long it takes for genes to switch on and off or would that be more other things? I think what people typically refer to as, you know, carbohydrate craving or, or they just say, I tried to do a fast or I tried to do a ketogenic diet, both of which are, are low carb. One of the things a lot of people say is that, you know, I felt all my energy was gone and I just craved food and, you know, I just, I just, I just couldn't help it. I, I had to stop and get something to eat. I think that's tied in to, you know, the fact that if you've never fasted or you've never sort of deprived yourself of calories, you know, for a period of time, then your cell has gotten used to the fact that, Anytime blood sugar is low, you're going to fix that for them. And so the cell just sort of chooses to lower the metabolism until that new glucose comes to it because that's what works every time. And so the cell will actually match, metabolically match the amount of energy that you're providing to it. But if you retrain those cells to consume fat when the glucose levels go low, and you can do this with a ketogenic diet or with prolonged fasts, then your cells will go back to being able to readily switch to burning fat instead of sugar. And when that happens, almost everyone that I've personally talked to about doing fasting, who especially who have had this problem, I've said, well, instead of switching immediately to a fast, why don't you do a ketogenic diet and slowly cut down your carbs until you know, you're at like net 20 grams of carbs a day. By net, we mean that you subtract the fiber, grams of fiber from the grams of carbohydrates. So for a lot of foods, like low glycemic foods, like broccoli and cauliflower and, and asparagus and spinach and things like that, like you can basically eat all you want or all you could hold and you still won't break the 20 grams of net, net carbs. But by doing this and training your body, so you're still consuming lots of calories, but they're in the form of, of primarily fats, and you want to do healthy fats if possible. But by training your body to burn fats again, then when you want to do a fast, you don't really get that complaint. You don't get the cravings, and you know you don't get this sort of, resulting dopamine and serotonin deprivation that you would otherwise get. Because as you probably know, about 95% of the dopamine and serotonin in your body comes from your gut. And in a sense, lots of those gut bacteria are simply rewarding you for feeding them what they want. And when you primarily eat carbohydrates, then your, your gut bacteria become over populated with these particular bacterium. And when they get what they want, you know, they reward you. And when they don't get what they want, they essentially get stingy and, and, you know, don't reward you with the dopamine and serotonin. And so, you know, this is sort of why you see people 
going to the same types of high energy foods whenever they search for something which they would refer to as a comfort food is this is because you know they're basically giving something to their gut bacteria that's going to allow the gut bacteria to release serotonin and dopamine so I, th- I think you can again hack all of these systems by training yourselves to burn fat and to getting out of this process where your body rewards you every time you eat a carbohydrate and you get really cranky and headaches and you have other problems when you you know try to wean yourself off of it. Yeah, that's something I often think about is this idea that we know our brains love we talked about the gut microbiome, but our brains, you know, love habits and love patterns and things like that. And I've read it doesn't really care in a way what they are. It just likes this idea of these habits and these routines. So when it comes to diet, I'm like, why, why not, especially given that, and then given what you just spoke about, about how, you know, our gut microbiome might be craving certain foods. It's like, why not experiment to find the diet that works for you on, on a health side of things, because ultimately you can definitely derive the same amount of pleasure from that diet. Once you kind of, like you said, you know, stick it out and and get to that point where you're deriving the same amount of dopamine and serotonin from it. I did have one more quick question. You were talking about the genes being activated and AMPK. It's often posited that certain compounds encourage autophagy, like black coffee, for example, or there are these AMPK activators, supplements, things like resveratrol, quercetin, other things. But now I'm wondering, because if you're talking about takes, you know, substantial amount of hours for those effects to happen, does that mean having black coffee while fasting, for example, is not really upregulating more autophagy at that moment? Or for example, I have like a supplement that's a quote AMPK activator and it has compounds that are supposed to jumpstart AMPK. Is it possible to jumpstart it quickly or is it not? Does it require longer? It it is possible to jumpstart the switch. Say, have decided that you're going to calorie restrict or or to fast, then you still have glycogen stores that that you're going to have to burn through. And, you know, the average 150-pound person has somewhere between 800 and 1,000 plus calories that are stored in their liver and muscle tissue. This is related to basically our fight and flight ability. So, you know, we want to have high energy resources available to the body because, you know, you never know when there's going to be a saber-toothed tiger, you know, leap out of the bush, or at least this would have been, you know, historically accurate. Now you wouldn't know when your boss is going to say like, jump up and do something for me kind of thing, and you get all stressed out. So your body likes to store this high energy glucose in the in the muscles and the liver and to have it available for kind of stressful things. But we store most of our energy for a 150 pound person, it's like 135,000 calories. So something like two months worth of, of energy needs in the form of fat in the body. And so these two different methods of how the body stores energy means that you can burn through the glycogen stores and still have plenty of energy for the body to operate. But because now your insulin levels are going to be low, and that's how the cell determines whether or not there's enough glucose and energy to power it, to keep mTOR turned off and to make proteins and to reproduce, et cetera, then that's the way that you can turn these switches in your favor. So taking like an AMP activator is a way of sort of 
well, I don't have to wait six hours for my glycogen stores to burn up naturally because I've stopped you know, consuming, I can, I can sort of preempt that and start them now by taking you know, various compounds. And I think I had a list of maybe 31 different compounds that all activate AMPK and, and put the brake on mTOR. And there are certainly numerous drugs that do so as well. Metformin and rapamycin come to mind. And so it's a way of both reinforcing autophagy and turning it up maybe to a little higher level and also a way of starting it earlier than it might start if you were just going to wait till, you know, all of your glycogen levels were low enough that your insulin levels lowered and, and your IGF-1 levels lowered, etc. I'm glad you said that because I, I've really been benefiting, I feel like, from my, my AMPK activating supplement. So sounds like it's okay to, to keep using that. Here's a huge question I have that haunts me. It really does haunt me. People will look at things like the ketogenic diet or something like gluconeogenesis in the liver and say that these states are basically emergency states, that they're not the natural state that the body you know, is designed to be in. And because of that, they are, quote, stressful on the body. Do you think they are, quote, stressful on the body with negative ramifications from that? Does the body even like think in that sort of terminology? I mean, I think about this a lot with gluconeogenesis and, you know, producing glucose from protein substrates, for example, and that's often said to not be the natural state of things. And so does the liver, I'm not that the liver's like conscious, but, you know, is it stressed out by the idea of doing gluconeogenesis compared to deriving energy directly from say glucose, for example? Do you have thoughts on that? Sure. Let me kind of break this question again into parts. So the gluconeogenesis, just in and of itself, one thing that really turns this on is stress. So elevated levels of cortisol will basically put your body in this fight or flight mode. For many people, this happens around the clock. It may happen because of their work environment or just their personal lifestyle. And your, your body prepares for this fight or flight by breaking down some of the proteins, primarily in, in muscle cells, and making glucose from that. So you can get a little gluconeogenesis when you go into a fast or, or when you do calorie restriction, but the main source of this process is actually stress. I had a really interesting self-experimentation where I needed to cut down some really large trees that were next to this laboratory I was building here in Gainesville. And these are really massive trees. So if they fell in the wrong direction, they could take out like my entire building. And so I did this repeatedly. And as part of my normal self-quantification process, I've been taking my blood sugar uh, multiple times a day for about six or seven years now. And keeping this in a diary, I actually use Google Calendar for this purpose, along with like what I eat and, and that sort of thing. So I can sort of look back and, and see how different foods affected my fasting glucose the next day and how different activities during the day might change my, my glucose. And one of the things that immediately I discovered was that I could have fasting glucose in the morning of, let's say, 87 not have any breakfast, and then go out and work on cutting down. So 
chainsawing a a large dead tree that was close to my lab building that I was really stressed out about if it went the wrong way and come inside and take my, my blood glucose and it would be like 150. And that increase in blood sugar was all due to cortisol basically reading my emotions and this stress level and saying, oh my God, something really bad is about to happen and James may need to run like heck. And basically just producing copious amounts of, of, of uh, blood sugar, getting ready for whatever this, this emergency was going to be. And so uh, I don't know if you've come across this before, but DHEA is sort of the yin to cortisol's yang. And you can reduce the levels of cortisol by increasing your levels of DHEA. And so I went out like another day and wanted to see what happened when I took a big dose of DHEA in the morning before I went and did this. And as it turned out, it was only a very small increase in blood sugar. So it really dampened this fight or flight response and all the attendant, you know, uh, neoglucogenesis, et cetera, that you get from elevated cortisol levels. And I even, you know, did this like repeatedly several days in a row just to see if you know, I was observing something real or if this was just like anecdotally, you know, like it happened once, but that's, you know, the next day my cortisol levels weren't, weren't high, my glucose levels weren't high, et cetera. So the, how this ties into society and life and everything is that, you know, a lot of people have very stressful jobs. I, you know, I was a Park Avenue lawyer for a while and, you know, I can tell you that I bet my cortisol levels were elevated you know, 12 hours a day, six or seven days of, of the week. So you're producing glucose because of this, and you're constantly keeping elevated blood sugar levels, even if you're trying to keep a low-carb diet. And I, you know, tell people in those kind of situations to try and find ways to de-stress, to either change jobs or take up meditation, or, you know, I became a marathon runner, which really helped with my stress levels. So I think the neoglucogenesis is more important in this aspect than it is in, in terms of the little effect it's going to have on autophagy or how it might sabotage autophagy. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And it really resonates with me because I know, like, just looking back at my lifestyle and my life and the different dietary approaches I've tried, I was super low carb for quite a while, but I always had high blood sugar levels. And it actually wasn't until I switched over to actually like, like a high protein, high fruit diet with intermittent fasting. And my blood sugar levels got like great from that. And I think it's, you know, the whole, for some people, their body might not enter that stress state on a low carb diet, but for others, they might, you know, perhaps need higher carbs or other changes to not have that cortisol response. Do you think if somebody does have high blood sugar levels, despite not taking in Let's say somebody's doing even like they're taking in no carbs, but they have elevated blood sugar levels. Do those blood sugar levels have the same potential for negative health effects as somebody who has high blood sugar levels from taking in sugar? Or is it worse in one case or the other? Great question. So elevated blood sugar primarily causes two things that are very relevant to aging and our susceptibility to disease. So one is that they basically 
fulfill one of the necessities of keeping mTOR on. So in other words, you're not going to be breaking mTOR because you've, you know, got low uh, blood sugar levels. The other important thing that I talk about in the book is that AGEs, advanced glycation end products. So the glycation part of that is specifically, you know, glucose. And how this acts is basically uh, glycation is a process of, you know, these sugar molecules binding with proteins and sort of gumming up the works, if you will. So, you know, if you're familiar with the creme brulee, you know, you basically sprinkle, you know, uh, sugar crystals on top of something, apply heat, and it makes a glass-like surface to like a custard. And that is a glycation effect. And that same thing happens to like the inside of your blood cell, you know, blood vessels. So those proteins that are exposed to the bloodstream and exposed to these high levels of glucose become glycated. They become brittle. The proteins are also harder to function in the ways that they, they're meant to function. And all of this, you know, increases the risks for hardening of the arteries and atherosclerosis. So it's not beneficial for your health at all. And so, and, and it doesn't really matter how the glucose got into the bloodstream. The fact that your proteins are exposed to it for long periods of time is what causes this glycation, advanced glycation end products, and causes these detrimental effects. Wow, you just answered the question that I've been wondering for so long. Yeah, because I was wondering, specifically with AGEs, I was wondering, did it matter if somebody had high blood sugar levels despite not taking in, you know, seemingly carbs? Was there still a potential for something like that? So that's that's really fascinating. Thank you. There is two more topics I'd love to touch on briefly if we have time. One is the role of antioxidants in the diet and I loved everything that you talked about that in the book. And also a question that's been haunting me is the idea of endogenous versus exogenous antioxidants and the potential benefits and even potential downsides to at least exogenous antioxidants. What are your thoughts on the role of exogenous antioxidants in the body do you think that everybody could benefit from them or is there the potential that taking in too many antioxidants, you know, say from food might downregulate our natural production of antioxidants? What do you think is the best approach to that? And then of course there's the whole, you know, people like on the carnivore movement will say that they're the ideal form of antioxidants because they're just producing them endogenously. So what are your thoughts on antioxidants? Well, we're only alive because we have endogenous antioxidants right now. So for, for your, your audience, is pretty sophisticated, but I'm good, just going to go over this very briefly. There's some interesting facts that I, that I think not everyone's exposed to, and, and it's certainly important to aging and healthy aging. So approximately 300 million ionizing radiation particles pass through your body every day, 300 million. And so this is like background radiation from the sun, from the environment, etc. not man-made. And of that, it creates 10 sextillion. So that's 10 with 22 zeros after it, free radicals in your body every day. And this causes 250 single-stranded 
DNA breaks in your nuclear genome of every cell of your body every day, and about 10 double-stranded breaks, which are so-called the worst DNA breaks because it's much more difficult to repair. Now, your, your cells have lots of repair mechanisms to deal with this. So I could talk at length about the repair mechanisms because it's one of the studies that I've been working on for a number of years uh, involving NAD and how as a coenzyme with sirtuins and PARPs, it, it allows for the identification and repair of these breaks. But focusing on the antioxidant side, so our cells make lots of antioxidants, some to protect the nuclear DNA, some to protect the mitochondrial DNA because it, it, your mitochondria is like a small cell inside your cell, which has its own mitochondria that you inherit primarily from your mother's side of the family and her mother's side of the family. So going back you know, to the mitochondrial Eve person, so to speak, uh, 50,000 years ago. And that process of protecting ourselves from these free radicals is absolutely essential. And it dysregulates with aging, especially we've done studies that show that NAD levels just completely collapse in most individuals between 75 and 80 years of age. And all these genes get turned off. So you have no repair going on at all in your DNA by the time you're in your 80s. And, you know, we're doing interventional studies now where we're increasing NAD levels to keep these genes turned on and DNA repaired. But you can, if you think about how much this, how, how important this is and how much of it is going on at any given time, imagine 10 years of everyday 250 single-stranded breaks in your DNA for 10 years of, of your life in every single cell. Of, of your body. And these are kind of randomly occurring, meaning that sometimes they're in places where it doesn't matter. And sometimes they may be right in the middle of a really important anti-tumor gene that, that helps keep your cell from developing cancer. And so it makes that gene non-functional when there's a break and you're no longer protecting that particular cell you know, from cancer. And so it's really an incredible problem. And so these endogenous compounds, SOD and catalase and glutathione, have very important roles to play in quenching these free radicals so it doesn't damage our DNA and you know, to, to allow us to live uh, long, healthy lives. So you know, this, this was the focus of most anti-aging research in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was on quenching free radicals. And certainly Dirk, Sandy and, uh, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw's book back in 82 was primarily focused on the different ways that you could reduce the free radicals in your body by what you ate and the supplements that you could take that would quench them, etc. So I was sort of like many researchers confounded when study after study came out showing that some of these free radical quenchers like vitamin A and vitamin E were causing increased risks of cancer among certain people with, with, with certain lifestyle practices. So if you were a smoker, 
and you took small, normal amounts of vitamin E as a supplement, you actually had a greater risk of cancer than for a, a smoker who didn't take vitamin E. And you would think the opposite would be true. And as it turns out, one of the processes that autophagy is involved with, which is taking out dysfunctional mitochondria. And so mitochondria themselves in the process of making energy for your cells produce a lot of free radicals. So sometimes this is upregulated by the cell in, in an event called uncoupling, where it actually makes free radicals for the purpose of killing off bacteria and viruses in your body by both raising the temperature and also producing lots of pro-oxidants that will attack the bacteria and viruses. But normally, you would want to get rid of these high free radical producing mitochondria because they're, they're causing a constant bombardment to their own DNA and your cell's nuclear DNA. Well, if you give it just a little bit of vitamin E or vitamin A, for example, you get just a constant amount of free radicals, but under the threshold that causes uh, mitophagy to take out the mitochondria. So you end up with a increasingly dysfunctional mitochondria, which is not being taken out and replaced by the autophagy process because you're actually protecting the mitochondria just enough to keep that from happening, but not enough from more and more nuclear DNA damage to go on. So I talk about in the book, it's kind of paradoxical in the sense that you would normally expect antioxidants to be very beneficial. And it turns out that under certain circumstances, it basically inhibits autophagy and causes you know, an increase in cancer. But generally, only in those kind of cases, like where someone's already smoking and then they add to that mix. So they're damaging their DNA because of the chemicals that are in the, in the uh, cigarette smoke, preventing just enough damage so that autophagy doesn't turn on. And, and that's really the problem. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines, one of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. 
Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just gotta upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light 
So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. So I do have a question about that as far as antioxidants. For example, taking in really small amounts of antioxidants while fasting, for example, 
Because like for me, I take, if I ever have medication compounded, for example, I take low-dose naltrexone for the health benefits overall, and I compound it with ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, because I thought I was doing my body some good. But I do take that in the fasted state. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been taking in any exogenous antioxidants while fasting. Do we know what amount of antioxidant can potentially have a negative effect on autophagy or the benefits that we might be experiencing during fasting? Should we just not take in any while fasting? So there's unfortunately very few studies in this area that have looked at how taking antioxidants during fasting affect uh, the levels of autophagy. You know, there's historically only a handful of scientists that have dedicated themselves to working on autophagy and understanding. And I think over time, we're going to see a lot more information in this area. But sort of to be safe, personally, when I do prolonged fasts and I'm trying to get, get really good deep autophagy and to clear out these dysfunctional mitochondria, I stop taking antioxidants for those several days. And I don't know if that's necessary or not, because one of the things in the studies that we're talking about where antioxidants were given to people, say, who were smoking, and it turned out that they actually increased their risk rather than reduce their risk. And this is likely due to the fact that it was just enough antioxidants to prevent autophagy from taking out these dysfunctional mitochondria and from preventing further genetic damage to their cells. That if they had divided up this group and had part of them doing fasting, because you can just guess that most of these smokers were not fasting, certainly on a regular basis. So if there was a subgroup of people who not only smoked, but also did intermittent fasting or prolonged fasting periodically and was supplementing and not supplementing, so a group of those who were supplementing with low-dose vitamin E or C or A, for example, versus another group that didn't, then we'd, we'd get some data as to whether or not something like fasting overrides this slight protection of the mitochondria from the effects of autophagy. So we don't really know, and I'm just being extra cautious personally by stopping my antioxidants when I'm trying to really increase autophagy and get you know the effects from prolonged fasting. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah, I've been wondering if I should err on the side of nothing while fasting, but then I still wonder about, okay, while eating in my time-restricted eating window, you know, there, is there potentially a benefit to antioxidants, you know, from fruits, vegetables, other things, or I don't know, I I just keep thinking about these carnivore people saying they would much rather produce antioxidants endogenously and never have external antioxidants. And I'm like torn. I'm like, what does it mean? So, yeah. Well, like I said, I I think that following a natural diet is going to give you sort of natural health span and lifespan. And, you know, if you look at populations around the, the world, even ones that are following a more paleolithic diet, you don't see them living past 100, 110 120 years of age. And so if you're really focused on anti-aging and completely avoiding disease, then I think you want to hack your biology by doing things like taking exogenous vitamins and improving 
things like turning on autophagy, et cetera. So, you know, I, I would take this idea that, you know, we evolved essentially to sort of like be perfect. And if we just go back to the paleolithic diet, we'll be perfect. Well, we don't encounter paleolithic people still living around today. And, you know, I, I for one, want to have a very extended lifespan. And so I think that the idea of exacerbating, you know, the health side, so, or increasing the benefits of the health side can be done with, you know, with supplementation and with lifestyle practices, rather than just saying, I'm going to try and cure everything with just diet alone. I think that's a wonderful approach to have. And you're speaking about NAD, for example. For listeners, I actually recently released an episode all about NAD, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. James, do you supplement with NR or NMN? I supplemented off and on with NR for three or four years because I started the clinical trials in 2016. And it was actually David Sinclair that pointed me in this direction in 2015. So I you know, benefited from his knowledge and expertise in this area and sort of mentoring me to take a look at this molecule. But we found that NAD itself was really beneficial. And there's different ways like using ionophoresis patch like once a week that you can do that Tremendously increases your NAD levels, and it's relatively inexpensive. The downside is you need a doctor's permission. Since it's a medical device, you need to get it from a compounding pharmacy, and you need a doctor's prescription. But it increases NAD levels by about five times for a 400 milligram dose. And you could take thousands of milligrams of nicotinamide riboside and not increase your NAD levels that much. And that may sound like a, a lot, but if you're 60, 70, 80 years old and you have severe NAD depletion, you really want to raise it maybe 15 or 20 times. So the fact that some of these supplements only raise your NAD levels by 50% means that you would never get to even the bottom threshold of where you want to be, let alone at an optimal level, maybe 20 times higher than where you currently are. What was the name of that patch? I want to get this. <laughs> so bad. So they're called Iontophoresis, and the company that makes them is Iontopatch. But the best place to go is through these compounding pharmacies. I have no interest whatsoever in the business, but we've used Archway in Covington, Louisiana, to provide the patches for some of the clinical trials that we did. And these are the ones that we'll be publishing when we you know, finish all the analytical work from these clinical trials. But I can tell you that a 400 milligram dose on an iontophoresis patch increased levels by about five times. And again, this, this is an incredible good result for a cost of somewhere between $25 and $30, depending on, you know, the doctor's prescription and sort of the markup some doctors do on, on prescription drugs. But it's relatively inexpensive, and for most people who aren't trying to use NAD for alcohol or drug withdrawal, or they have some bad pathogen that's causing a severe depletion of their NAD levels. So for geriatrics in general, a 400 milligram dose once a week would be probably adequate to keep your levels up you know, to more of youthful amounts and keep these genes that we want turned on on. So we're, we're doing a lot more studies in this area. We were lucky enough to get 
funding in our nonprofit to get our own mass spectrometer, which is the only really efficient and repeatable way of measuring NAD and the NAD metabolites. So we're going to be able to measure NAD levels in our own lab from now on. So I'm looking at doing quite a few more clinical trials and really learning how to optimize NAD levels because I think, as David Sinclair told me, it's probably one of the most important anti-aging molecules we've found. Yeah. When I interviewed David on this podcast, that was one of the takeaways. I was like, yep, I'm going to start supporting NAD pronto. Wait, so to clarify, so that intero, is it a patch? It is a physical patch that you put on your skin. And the iontophoresis is basically, it's a incredibly low voltage battery like you would find in a watch that puts a tiny amount of current into your body that opens up the pore membranes and allows the NAD to cross into the cells. And then from the cells, it'll go into other cells because this is sort of how the body generally works is that if you have an excess of mitochondria or NAD or something like that, you have pores that open up or membrane channels that open up and essentially one cell will share with other other cells uh, sort of excess organelles and proteins and things that they have. So it actually is about 80% as effective as an intravenous dosing of NAD. I, I was just sort of blown away with how effective it was. That's not to say if you're not severely depressed, if you're not you know, 70 or 80 years old, you can take the precursors, which turn into NAD. That would be nicotinamide riboside, generally called NR by the researchers and some marketers. And then nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is probably what David talked a lot about. He has patents with the University of New South Wales in Australia on the manufacturing of NMN from different sources. And he's done a lot of work in testing uh, this particular precursor. But both of these molecules, as well as just niacin and ultimately tryptophan, which is where these all come from, will increase your NAD levels. It's just that as you get older, what you find in many areas of cell metabolism is that older people have a lot harder time making certain enzymes. And some of the enzymes that are necessary to recycle NAD or to turn nicotinamide or NMN or NR into NAD are depleted themselves or maybe non-existent at all. And one of the really important ones is upregulated by exercise. So if you have an elderly person that already has like joint problems, like osteoarthritis. And so it's painful for them to get up and move around, let alone, you know, do a fair amount of exercise. Then you'll see that they are almost always NAD depleted as well. And so we want to fix this problem. We want to turn on these longevity genes, some of which will actually help with their osteoarthritis and, and then allow them to hopefully do more exercise and to recycle more of this NAD in their cells by themselves without the exogenous supplementation. I know we've been talking for quite a while. One thing I want to touch really super briefly on kind of relates to you're talking about antioxidants, you know, and we're talking about how much of an antioxidant would have an effect on autophagy. Another thing that you talked about was hormesis in your book and the hermetic potential of different things. And I just wanted to say thank you for one thing. 
you talked about something absolutely fascinating was that even things like low-dose chemical toxins could be at times hormetic. You talked about, for example, an experiment where they had accidentally put on diluted toxins onto a plant and actually grew taller. I just found that absolutely fascinating. And the reason I'm saying thank you is not that I'm saying toxins are a good thing, but I think I, and I think a lot of people who we get into this mindset of being so worried about, you know, so many things and toxins and doing things wrong and really it made me reframe things. And I was like, you know, really anything has the potential to, I don't know, it helped me with my personal fears that I have surrounding some things. And I made me want to reframe and think, you know, how can I see my dietary choices and my lifestyle choices and what I'm doing is just making me grow stronger. I know that wasn't like what you were trying to do with that section, but it really had an effect on me. So thank you for that. I I think you did get some of the message very well because, you know, I didn't really go into this into the book, but there's been a number of studies that have shown that people that live in smog areas actually are a little better protected from cancer than people who don't. And this is, again, you know, counterintuitive or paradoxical. And when you look at it, we're not talking about, you know, like downtown Beijing, but, you know, living in an area that has some smog probably has the same effect as increasing the damage of your mitochondria, for example, just enough that now the autophagy is going to take out the mitochondria, uh, as opposed to the reverse hormesis, which is what I talk about with the antioxidants, where protecting those same mitochondria just a little bit might mean that they're still dysfunctional, they're still producing free radicals that are damaging the nuclear DNA and their own DNA, but doesn't rise quite to the level where the autophagy is going to take them out. So on the other hand, a little bit of cigarette smoking, a little bit of hypoxia, you know, which is sort of the idea that carbon monoxide from cigarettes, you know, will block some of the molecules in your hemoglobin and give you a, a mild amount of hypoxia, that this might be one of the effects of why so many supercentenarians smoke, but they were all light smokers. You know, John Cummins claimed to have two cigarettes in the evening a day only, you know, for approximately 100 years. And many of the other supercentenarians, when I talked to them and their nurses, they would say, you know, oh, well, basically she just puffed at it. Like, I don't think she ever really breathed it in very much. So it was it was just very light exposure. And this could be very similar to like, you know, living in uh, uh, the burbs of uh, Los Angeles or other big cities where you're exposed to smog, but it actually turns out to be a helpful stress to your cells rather than a detrimental stress. That is so fascinating. And yeah, it, it brings up this picture of maybe one of the least ideal situations to be in would be where our bodies due to our our diet and our lifestyle are quote struggling but we we kind of keep them going with these you know supplements or these patches in a way or band-aids when really it might be more beneficial to you know address the root you know to actually have the struggle and grow stronger from that so that is so fascinating well, we had all of these doctors that when the major Western countries were, were, you know, doing trade with populations above the Arctic Circle and the Pacific Islands and, and South America and Africa sort of for the 
for the first times in modern history. And they were able to send doctors and scientists to these remote places and study these populations. They almost uniformly wrote back that these people didn't seem to have the diseases of the affluent of sort of the normal people back home. And Many studies have been done that show that when these people, whether it's Papua New Guinea or even Okinawa, when they transfer or move to the United States or like the Papua New Guineas to mainland New Zealand, for example, that within very short period of time, you see them succumbing to the same diabetes and heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's rates as, as the Western population. So the, the sad part of this is that you know we don't live long enough that that's in our own memory of these things happening. You know, three of my grandparents lived to their late nineties, but their lifestyle it was incredibly different from modern lifestyle. They lived on farms, they farmed huge gardens of their own, they they ate meats if less than what we do now, but but they were livestock from their own uh, pastures. You know, so they were they weren't fed you know, sort of the CAFO version of, you know, like a diabetic meal, a uh, high fat, high carbohydrate to create these ultra fatty, you know, livestock that, that we do now. So their lifestyles were very healthy. But, you know, if you're only 20 or 30 years old, you probably wouldn't have been exposed to many people like this. Yeah, it's so fascinating. It reminds me of, I don't remember what it was. I was reading some study and it was about how some population. I wish I had in front of me. It was like some sort of probably like third world country or something that had a problem with some sort of, I don't know if it was parasites or something like that. And then once they received conventional Western medicine to address that, you know, infection, they actually started dying of other things like cancer and such because that like the infections have been keeping their immune system basically on guard. And then when that was gone, their health <laughs> deteriorated, which was absolutely fascinating. So going back to, I guess, like what, like what you just said about the importance of, you know, natural lifestyles. Yeah. Supporting natural lifespans. And I guess to bring everything full circle, this was actually what I wanted to ask you at the very beginning. And then I, I, I didn't, it was something that you talk about in the book. You talk about how it seems that starting around age 25 is when we start experiencing aging. And there was this idea that we're almost pre-programmed to start aging at 25. My big question here is, is it a slow buildup? And for some reason, starting around 25, that's where we start experiencing the quote symptoms of aging, depending on what we think aging even is. Or do you think there's literally like a switch on the timeline? Like we're, we're aging, we're, we're, we're not aging and now we're aging. This is a really profound question. And if you, you know, are at one of these scientific aging conferences with two or 300 scientists, they're going to divide into dozens of different theories as to what aging is and what the causes are. But what we do know, and, and, and does point to a type of programming, is that you know we share a lot of our genome with other mammals. So for example, you don't see mice, you, um, the average mouse lives about three years, and you don't see mice living randomly to 14 years of age. And you see certain 
pathologies in mice that only occur in 24-month and older mice, but not in younger mice. And you see this across the animal kingdom everywhere. So, you know, if I, if I said this person I'm describing has two or three comorbidities, including atherosclerosis and has had cancer in their life, and I said, I'm going to give you two ages, guess which one this person is. If I said one was 19 and the other 69, I don't know anyone who would say, well, that's probably likely to be the 19-year-old, right? Because these things do occur age-related and development, you know, from the time you're born until you reach adulthood is now somewhere in your low, you know, 20s by most counts that that I've I've seen. You still have brain development going on especially in males until you're about 23, 24 years old. And so I don't think it's having to do so much with the, the older you are, the more accumulated damage you have. I think it has to do with the fact that our we all these animals have evolved on the basis of a number of factors including their environment which for mice involve high predation so meaning they have lots of predators you know birds and all kinds of animals from possums and and fox and and cats and things like that that will that will uh, consume them and so their evolutionary strategy has been based on a short lifespan with lots and lots of babies. And then, you know, the fact that they're more nocturnal, for example, protects them from some, you know, predators that don't have good night vision. So these factors have basically come into play. Humans have very few predators. And the smarter we became, the fewer those predators became until where evolution has sort of given us the benefit of more and more and more protection. And so our cells are much better able to protect the DNA, to repair things, and to keep the right enzyme levels and things like that than short-lived animals. Now, I personally and many people, including, you know, some of my mentors like David Sinclair and, and George Church want to see people have much more radically extended health spans. So be as healthy at 100 as they were when they were 19. In other words, their risk of getting a disease or of dying doesn't change as they age. I think that's entirely possible. It's just that we can't rely on evolution to take care of this. We, we have to figure these things out. What's causing the, the breakdown of this homeostasis that keeps our cells in good health and protects us from DNA damage and from lack of NAD and enzymes and things like that. And I think that uh, research in this area is just increasing exponentially and that we're going to basically solve this problem of the detrimental effects of aging in the next 10 to 20 years. And, you know, people that grow up as kids in, let's say, 30 years probably will look at people getting old and dying the way we look at people getting polio or tuberculosis, which would have been something that our grandparents would have worried about. Wow, that is such a concept to think about. Well, thank you. I mean, largely in part to people like yourself and the work that you're doing to, you know, move towards that and that does bring me to the very last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast. 
And that is just because I realized how important mindset is surrounding everything. So speaking of being grateful for you, what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I have just been, you know, blessed with so many opportunities. I I was lucky enough to have some very smart parents. I think my, my parents are smarter than I am. I think I maybe had more educational benefits than, you know, they they had growing up on on you know a, a farm in rural Missouri. My dad became a jet fighter pilot, uh, never went to college. My mom became a nurse. And I had a lot more opportunities available to me. And I benefited from just the incredible work that other people do and the fact that you know I have the ability to read and understand it. Just been able to to travel, to do things, to meet people, to you know, expand my horizon. So I'm a very optimistic person, but part of that is also been the luck of the draw. You know, like I, I often have seen people that you, you sort of say you're only two tragedies away from, you know, like a, a really bad life uh, because that's usually one tragedy doesn't, it gets you down, but you, you get over it. But a lot of people who are unfortunate to suffer some sort of tragedy in their life, often or maybe most often not brought on by even their own actions, also end up getting a second tragedy that happens. So, you know, something's going on and then let's say a parent dies or you get sick yourself on top of losing your job or something. So these sort of things like sort of randomly happen to some people. And of course, you can maybe reduce your risks, but you can't protect yourself you know, from all of these things happening. And so some of it's just luck of the draw. And I've been, I've been, you know, very fortunate sort of never to have been pushed to that sort of double whammy that, that really sort of just kills the spirit of some people. I'm so grateful for all of the work that you're doing. And it's just really incredible. I can't even express how much I enjoyed your book and how much I learned from it. And it really made me think about so many things. So Thank you so much for what you're doing. And also thank you. You are providing a giveaway for our listeners. So I'm going to be doing this on my Instagram. So for listeners, my Instagram is at Melanie Avalon. If you go there, we're going to do a giveaway for a signed copy of James's book. So definitely check that out. And thank you. Thank you for that offer. That's very, very exciting. And for listeners, I will put links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash the switch. And then lastly, James, for people to follow your work in addition to your book, is there any way else they can follow your work or what links and such would you like to put out there? Certainly. So, you know, I really wrote this book because I want people to understand autophagy and mTOR and how, you know, this comes into play with any diet they choose and any lifestyle that they choose. And so I I really appreciate people like you that invite me on so that I can share this information because that's what I really, you know, wrote this book to accomplish. My laboratory work is through a nonprofit called Better Humans. And we have a website, betterhumans.org. At this moment, we're so busy doing clinical trials and analytical work on those clinical trials. I don't really have a newsletter. I have a lot of people that write to me and say, please put me on the list for a newsletter. And I'm hoping that maybe with additional funding, we'll be able to hire somebody to help us put some of this together. But we're mostly writing scientific papers for other scientists and for doctors. 
so that when we do disseminate this information, you can take like a paper to your doctor and say, look, James Clement's research shows that NAD levels go down with age. I can't get a NAD test because they're not given, but I'm pretty sure that I have depleted NAD. So, you know, will you write me a prescription for ionophoresis patches? And he also has uh, research showing that these patches work really well. That's the focus of our work right now. And I'm hoping that we will get videos or newsletter or something so that we can give people more up-to-date information. But we're just, we're so overwhelmed with the research itself and really not funded, you know, as much as we, we would hope to be. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can do this down the road. Oh, wow. That makes me so excited. That is fantastic. I feel like I'm, I'm always the type that walks into the doctor's office and I have like these printed out scientific studies for why I'm, you know, wanting to try something or, or another. Usually the response is either they completely dismiss me and get annoyed or they're receptive to it, which is always, I'm so grateful when that does happen. But that's amazing. I love that idea of, you know, having that sort of resource for people because oh, that's just, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. I've enjoyed our conversation more than you could ever know. And I look forward to your future work and hopefully talking more in the future. That would be great. Thanks so much, Melanie. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.